Take a deep breath, take the higher road That's what they always say, as if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself, it's life ain't just a dream You make your own, so kick and scream The people will like with a never-ending force You never had the chance, so what you waiting for? The day has come, my friend, cause this is war In the ever-evolving landscape of healthcare, the need for reform has never been greater. The challenges that we face are numerous. Nursing shortages, nonsensical and unconstitutional mandates, and the growing prevalence of AI technology that poses a threat to patient privacy. These are just a few of the issues that highlight the pressing need for change. These, along with the growing corporatization of healthcare, only add another layer of complexity to an already burdened and unsustainable system. It is imperative that we address these issues head on and pave the way for a future where quality healthcare is accessible and affordable while respecting and maintaining the individual freedoms and the dignity of those who rely on the care that we provide. You're listening to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton. Before we get started today, I do want to encourage our listeners, if you have questions or comments, or perhaps you want to share your own experiences with what you're seeing on the front lines of healthcare, you can submit those to us directly by emailing them to nurses at americaoutloud.com. We will be featuring your questions and comments every Tuesday on a special Q&A episode with the nurses. We encourage all of you to engage in the battle and find your voice in this fight. But until you are able to do that, we will continue to be that voice for you. Joining me today is Twyla Braze, President and Co-Founder of Citizens Council for Health Freedom, a national patient-centered, privacy-focused, free market policy organization that she helped create in 1998 to protect patient and doctor freedom. She is the author of the eight-time award-winning book, Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. Twyla's efforts led to a national law requiring parental consent for research using newborn DNA and a national campaign exposing HIPAA as a data sharing rule. She is the founder of an online nationwide directory of direct pay practices known as the Wedge of Health Freedom. She is also the creator of the Patient Toolbox, an easy to use tool to help patients understand their options in coercive situations and to maintain control over their treatment decisions. She has initiated multiple billboard campaigns to stop mask and vaccination mandates. Twyla's Health Freedom Minute is heard weekdays by more than 5 million listeners on approximately 870 radio stations in 47 states. She provides testimony at state legislatures, meets with members of Congress and healthcare policymakers, tweets, conducts original research, speaks around the country, and has been featured by CNN, Forbes, Fox News, Nature, NBC Today, Politico, Science, The Hill, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. Modern Healthcare named Twyla number 75 on their 2009 100 Most Powerful People in Healthcare list. In 2020, Minnesota Physician included her in their list of 100 Most Influential Healthcare Leaders. 
In 2019, Twilo was selected as just one of 18 leaders to participate in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Quality Summit. Their discussions were used to provide President Trump with a roadmap for restructuring federal quality measurement programs. With her extensive expertise and dedication, she is at the forefront of advocating for individual rights and privacy in the healthcare system. Twyla, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. Oh my God, absolutely. Let me just tell you, before we weigh, you know, start digging into everything, I am just, I'm really so honored to have you here, Twyla. Um, I've often said that if there was a silver lining to COVID, it is that these captured government agencies and big pharma have finally overplayed their hand. And in doing so, so many of us in the industry have finally been awakened to really what's been happening for far too long. And I'm I'm thankful for every eye that has been opened as a result of that, including my own. But I, I feel like it's so important to recognize those who came before us. There are some who have been in the thick of the fight and just blazing trails for decades. And Twyla, you are one of them. So I just want to thank you for your continued efforts. You are truly an inspiration to, to many and most certainly to myself. Well, thank you for that. That's Those are very kind words. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, let's let's dig right in. You've, um, you've been in healthcare how long now? Well, as a nurse, you know, I was a nurse, a pediatric emergency room nurse, and then to get better hours, I went into school nursing, and then I discovered what was going on, you know, politically across the country with healthcare and started this organization. So, uh, you know, really, since I got out of college, I have been, you know, in healthcare, when one way or the other. Right, right. That's, I mean, for me, I've been in uh, the system now in, in one capacity or another for 27 years since I was 19 years old. This is really all that I have ever known is is healthcare. Um, I spent a lot of it um, prior to getting my RN in uh, more of the office or administrative. I was a clinical medical assistant for many years, but still in that kind of corporate setting. I worked for the largest for-profit uh, hospital corporation in the United States for more than a decade. Um, how have you seen the increase in that the corporatization of healthcare? Have you seen that growing in recent years? And what do you think the implications are for for that? Well, I think, you know, this was, you know, from the very beginning of when we started, when I started down this path of policy, which really started with what the Clintons planned to do. And I think a lot of people don't understand what the Clintons planned to do was to split the country up into about eight regional alliances and then to give us all HMOs. And so that's, we'd have to have an HMO in our region and that would be our choice. And of course, the HMO is a corporate uh, entity. And so uh, Hillary's plan always was to create a government-run healthcare system of HMOs, having the corporations run it. Now, she didn't get what she wanted, but she moved the needle in her direction, and a lot of things uh, changed, including, uh, so, so she tried to do that in 1993, 1994. Uh, by 1996, uh, we got HIPAA, and HIPAA 
the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act really gave our data to the corporations and to the government without our consent, and that then gave them power and control. But moving even uh, beyond that, um, or I should say even before that, I should really say before that, in 1973, uh, Ted Kennedy had this idea, and which he moved forward with Nixon's help, uh, that he would um, create, I believe this was his idea, he would create socialized medicine by putting it in a corporate version first. So the HMO Act of 1973 uh, gave $375 million to build HMOs around the country and to provide technical assistance to make that happen. And it also forced every employer with 25 or more employees to offer an HMO. And so this was really his way, I think, to grow socialized medicine at the corporate level. I wrote an article once called Blame Congress for HMOs, where I look at the history of this and I went into the Library of Congress to figure out exactly what had happened. And, you know, I, I read Ted Kennedy's comments on the floor of the U.S. Senate, where he said that they were going to merge the delivery and financing of care into this thing called the HMO. Well, this thing called the HMO is now the health plan. And if you look at the, the actual uh, legal definition of a health plan, it will be that it is prepaid health care. It is not health insurance. And so a lot of people have been uh, de deceived in thinking that these health plans are health insurance. They are not. They work just like socialized medicine, where you pay in advance and then you hope that you're going to get care at the end, but they get to control whether you do or you don't. So we call the health plan the corporate version of socialized medicine. And I think this is what Ted was planning to do. He wanted all of us to get used to being told no. Whereas a real health insurance company, which is what we had before, and people who are in their 70s and 80s, uh, when I give speeches and I ask the question, is there anyone here who remembers when the health insurance company paid you, sent you a check, just like the car insurance company, just like the homeowner's insurance company does today, and they do remember and that's what we should have for insurance. But that's what was taken away, not only by the movement by the HMO Act, that didn't take it away, but then um, uh, putting uh, Medicare into the HMOs in something called Medicare Advantage. Uh, that was 2003. And then, in, uh, and then with the Affordable Care Act in 2010, that actually said all of us could only have a qualified health plan. We didn't have any other option unless we were in healthcare sharing. And it also prohibits uh, the sale of catastrophic coverage to anyone over the age of 29. So this, this uh, and, and of course, it encouraged the consolidation of the health plans around the country. So really, when you look around the country, what you really see is like, Blue Cross Blue Shield in their various names, um, and you see United Health Group, and you see Cigna and Humana and Aetna, but some of them are even considering, you know, some mergers, and you see Kaiser, and I'm probably forgetting one. But really, uh, years and years ago, I said that uh, I read that there would be a plan, there would be a time where there'd be only five to seven health plans, and I could see how that was going to happen. And now that's exactly where we are. But our organization. Uh, intends to create a parallel system 
of freedom, um, starting with our wedge of health freedom at jointhewedge.com, um, a, a parallel system of freedom with real insurance uh, return to us so that we hold the cash and therefore we hold the control. So this will be something similar to health sharing or um, to, to me, health insurance, and I'm not familiar with the system that you just described uh, prior, um, but to me, it seems like health insurance, the way it is now, is the biggest Ponzi scheme that there ever was. I'm more drawn to a model like a health sharing. So is this going to be similar to that? So the, the parallel system actually uh, in our vision for where this is going, um, it will it will not get rid of Obamacare, it will not get rid of the health plans, but it will uh, draw people into the parallel system for freedom. So it will be, so on, on the wedge of health freedom, this is our online directory of cash-based practices. We already have a, about 480 uh, practices. We've got four um, cash-based pharmacies. We've got one cash-based surgery center, and we've got dentists, cash-based dentists that are starting to join the wedge. So in the parallel system, it will all be about cash. And you can have insurance, but the insurance will pay you, and then you'll pay cash. And eventually, we want to have a cash-based hospital, well, more than one, but, you know, at least starting in that direction, where the the costs are really, they, you know, the costs of healthcare today, I think this is a really important thing, because I'm just thinking about your listeners and what they might be thinking. I like to say that the price of healthcare today does not have to be the price of healthcare tomorrow. And you understand this if you think of just how LASIK surgery, which is just cash, went from being like $5,000 or $10,000 an eye down to $1,000 for two eyes in some cases, right? Depends on the, on the market. Or you look at the surgery center of Oklahoma, cash-based surgery. Well, their prices are 50 to 90% lower than the hospital up the street, just a few miles away. Because they don't have all these third-party fingers. They don't have the health plans. They don't have the government. They don't have the regulatory reporting. They don't have the utilization review, the retroactive utilization re review, prior authorization. All of that is out of the picture, and all the costs of that is, are out of the picture. They don't even have to have electronic health records, and the Surgery Center of Oklahoma does not. So all of these costs are gone. And so then you really just get down to the cost of the service plus sufficient profit you know, to keep everything running. And so a cash-based uh, alternative parallel system is where we believe healthcare needs to go. It's where it always was. And it's because of the introduction of all these third-party controllers that we have all found it unaffordable, inaccessible, and not private. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that 90% of the battle is really changing people's mindsets um, and, and educating them on, on these facts. And, you know, it's, it's, it has to be about prioritizing your health at some point as well. I mean, most of it, like my, uh, with Remnant Nursing, our membership, we're a private membership association, it's just $30 a month to join, which I think is incredibly affordable. Um, but many people are like, well, I just, you know, it's, it's times are tough. I get it. And they're like, I just, I just can't afford $30 a month. Well, most of us pay, um, that combined for our streaming services. You know, I think it's just about finding uh, ways to prioritize our health because we're going to pay for it now, or we're going to pay for it later with, uh, disease and, and other, uh, factors. Um, 
So I think 90% of it is really educating and changing the mindset of the public because we've all been conditioned for so long to feel like this is the only way. Well, and because of what has transpired with all of these laws where all you have is prepaid healthcare, which is what the health plan is, where you have to give all this money in advance uh, as though you were getting first dollar coverage, but you aren't. You're getting something really terrible, like really high deductible, really high premium. This is not really what insurance is. Um, and so, the, so they don't have as much money because their premiums are so high and yet they're getting almost nothing for it. And so your services would likely be even more attractive if people had more of their own money back, right? Yep, exactly. Exactly. And I think that, you know, I think there's definitely um, people are starting to migrate towards that direct pay model. Certainly, I think people are becoming more and more disillusioned with our traditional healthcare system. And I think that is largely due to everything that has happened with COVID. And it, again, it opened so many eyes. Um, it was reported back in 2021 that an estimated 100,000 nurses left the bedside, uh, myself included, you know, and they, <laughs> these, uh, these numbers of nurses, they, they were younger than expected. Uh, they would think that these nurses would be over the age of 50 by the time that they were leaving. Certainly, there is a variety of reasons whether they were uh, leaving because of what was happening in the hospitals with the protocols, the denial of early treatment, uh, they may have been fired for uh, not complying to the vaccine mandates or just burnout in general from working through that pandemic. Um, but these staffing, staffing shortages in general, this has been an issue that has plagued our profession for decades. But have you ever, in your many years here in this uh, field, have you ever witnessed such a mass exodus of nurses? No, and I think that the public should be very concerned because this is something that the, quote, healthcare system, end quote, is doing to itself, yes. right? If they re, I mean, it's so, it's so what, hypocritical, right? You get to be in the hospital working through the height of COVID with the virus everywhere and, uh, you know, putting your lives in danger, you know, taking care of people, saving lives, right? And then this shot comes out and suddenly you're not, you're, you're not worth having right. if you, if you don't subject yourself to this shot. And yet, you know, if you would have even thought about leaving during the COVID days, you know, people would have said, well, the mission of nursing is saving people, isn't it? Right. Yep. And so it's just like they, they, they left the mission behind and now it's just all about compliance. As long if if you comply, you can be part of the mission. If you don't comply, you're really not on mission. Well, th that's not at all the mission, mission of nursing. And, you know, speaking as a nurse myself and an advocate for patients for a long time, you know, critically thinking and doing everything possible to save lives, you know, the healthcare system itself is deciding it's, it's not about patients and it's not about the mission. It's about protocols and compliance and other people's agendas. It's a dangerous time for patients. They need really good nurses on their side, really good doctors. But, you know, even the doctors are being uh, encouraged uh, morally, ethically, uh, bureaucratically <laughs> to leave because they're spending more time with their charts. This is what I wrote about in my book, Big Brother in the Exam Room. They're spending more time with their charts than with their patients. And some doctors have said, or maybe I think I quote a nurse who said, I'm treating the chart, not the patient. 
That's that's so true. And I really I've said this many times that I really feel like it was when they ushered in the electronic health record that that nurse patient relationship really, really started to deteriorate because it's not, it just feels like it's not about taking care of the patient in the bed any longer. It's about checking boxes. And it just feels like um, that is, is what kind of caused a divide between nurses and their patients. You know, they get us on the computers like we 90% of the time ha have our back turned from the patient when we're charting on these uh, computers. And it, to me, it just always felt like that was where it started. Would you agree with that? I would. And, you know, I wasn't in the hospital situation, but I, it wasn't all that many years after I'd left that I ran into a nurse who said, you left you left just in time yeah. because of the encroachment of the electronics, the computers, the reporting. It's really a surveillance system. You know, that's that's what's going on there because outsiders have decided that the data is so valuable to control the doctors, to track the patients, to profile the patients, to use the, that, the data that they secure to rationalize rationing, to bring civil rights into the exam room by saying, well, there's this many black people, there's this many white people, right? You're taking care of them different. But I can, <laughs> I, I remember talking to a doctor once about um, a white and a black child in the same room and how the mother of the black child got really upset with the doctor because she was getting a different protocol. And and she she told her, she said, you know, I, or maybe it was the white mother that was upset with the, I'm not sure, somebody was upset. Anyway, um, what she knew as a physician and a pediatrician is that the, the uh, black patients uh, children dealing with asthma need a much more rigorous protocol often than white children with asthma, both of them in the hospital, but both of them getting different treatments. And she she like looked at the mother and said, do you not want me to treat your child? Like your child needs to be treated. This is not about, you know, a child is a child, right? right. This is about knowing how to, how to treat a patient and being an advocate and not following somebody's protocol, right? Exactly. That's in the computer. Exactly. And that just lends to the, the, the fact that healthcare um, is individualized. It needs to be individualized. It is not one fits all medicine. And, you know, that's that recommendation from the Biden administration of a shot in every arm to me was so incredibly irresponsible and short sighted because we aren't all the same. We are not made up the same way. And these blanket recommendations are very, very dangerous. Um, but to go back to that, to the EHR, you know, if you if you got out in time and didn't have to go through that, you you are very lucky. Um, I will say that I I can honestly say I've I've said many times I'm like what in the world were they thinking when they designed this system? They definitely never you know consulted with the nurse, and you know I've heard that said many many times, but. It's because it's not very user friendly, right? Well, it's not supposed to be. It's it is a billing system, right? It is not for patient care and safety. It's designed for maximum reimbursement and, as you alluded to, data collection because it's a surveillance system. It has nothing to do with patient care. Yeah, that's correct. And actually, you know, when that uh, when that law passed, it was uh, uh, Obama signed it. Uh, exactly four weeks after his inauguration. So it had been in the works quite a while before he was even cut into the office, right? And so, um, and it mandated electronic health records or 
you would get paid less for every Medicare patient that you see. And so you had five years to figure this out and install it. And out of the woodwork came all of these electronic health record companies. I, I reported in my book, I can't remember, but I think it was like, you know, a thousand or 1300 just suddenly, you know, appeared overnight because there was so much money uh, to help doctors do this. And there was no time to figure it out. And they didn't care about the patient or the doctor or that it worked for the patient or the doctor. Everybody was just trying to meet the deadline and the companies didn't care. Uh, there was there's one quote in the book that's something like, um, you know, they could see the salesperson for the EHR all the time. There'd be calls, there'd be this or that. But once the, the electronic health record system was sold to them, it was harder than anything to get anybody to come and help them with it, right? So because they were not there for the patient or the doctor, they were just there to sell the system. Yep, exactly. And I, I remember the days of when they implemented, I mean, I am, I've been around long enough that I do remember paper charts. And when they did implement uh, the electronic health record system, what a nightmare, absolute nightmare it was to get all of this information transferred. And you're exactly right. We had people there that were, that were there for the, the beginning integration and the sales. But yeah, you could never find them once the, the deal was uh, done. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, one of, the, one of the doctors uh, that I quote, because I quote him all the time, but I quote him in the book, and he says something like this, that these uh, systems are command and control systems through which every clinical decision has to pass. And I know that people go into the exam room or into the hospital and they think, there's something wonderful about this technology because they're used to technology being wonderful, the phone in their pocket, you know, the, the internet, whatever, you know, right? Uh, but they don't understand that somebody outside populates what even gets to be an option in that electronic health record, what the menu is or how big the menu is or how much time it might even look to search to find the one thing that you want to order off the menu uh, and how that sometimes actually introduces errors because you've got a menu of 250 items and then you, you wanted to click the 199th, but you accidentally clicked the 200th and you didn't notice that you picked the wrong one, right? Um, and so, you know, this, this one doctor told me this exact situation. She said, I just have to keep looking through this menu. I'm just, I know exactly what I want to order, but I have to find it, right? She can't just write it out. Uh, patients just have no idea how much time has been taken away in meaningless, useless bureaucratic time because of, of the electronic health record. Whereas before they'd have a piece of paper, they'd write it down, they'd send it in. And then they get a, they get something back. They get a report back. Like we, you know, in the ER, we get our labs. They just come right back to us as a piece of paper and boom, we had them right there. Well, now they come into the record and you sometimes have to think, oh yeah, that's right. It must be somewhere in the electronic health record, but it's not outside anymore. It's, you're busy. You, know, you have to actually think about what you don't see. And that also introduces error or time delays about things that should be noticed right away. Exactly. And, you know, technology in general, really, I feel like has always been a double-edged sword. Um, you know, I've, I've often said, I feel like it'll be the downfall of humanity, and I'm sticking to that at this point. Um, but with the growing prevalence of of AI coming into, now people will argue that, you know, well, it, it, it gives a lot of um, assistance with administrative tasks and all of that. But I, to me, I feel like it's a very slippery slope. What are, what are your thoughts on 
the introduction of AI into uh, the practice of medicine? Yes, I, I think it's the uh, executive director of MedPage, maybe, or something, one of those kind of publications, who actually wrote an article. And the title of the article was My AI Lied to Me, or AI Lied to Me. Um, and he had put in some sort of, you know, whatever problem, situation, whatever you want to say. And uh, he was going along reading it, thinking, oh, yeah, that's pretty good, you know, because he knows what he's doing, right? It's pretty good, pretty good. Then he gets to a certain part where he's like, what? And he realized that AI had just gone through a variety of studies that they found and put it all together like one big mishmash of things that actually didn't make sense at all for what should be done for the patient. Um, but but if you if you didn't know, if you weren't very experienced, if you were a new doctor, uh, if you, you know, depending on your training, you may or may not understand that, no, 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 this is not what should be done for the patient. But everybody wants to go toward AI. And, you know, there's a new study out that says that some doctors are very excited about it, but there's 29% of doctors that are very concerned about it. And I think they should be because one, ultimately, you can't sue AI when you're when your loved one dies, it's going to be on the back on the record of the doctor who agreed to accept the AI, you know, recommendation. So I think, and the, and the other thing is that, you know, the brilliance of a good physician is their critical thinking mind, the fact that they can creatively come up with solutions. And with AI, we move away from using their own brains and we really lose a great skill. And therefore, I think doctors should not rely on AI and should try to do their very best to keep their mind and their brain sharp and thinking their own thoughts and not being so hurried that they allow other people to think thoughts for them that are wrong or will put their own license in danger, but also just <laughs> decreases their ability to think. Oh, exactly. I've seen this for for years where, you know, physicians aren't aren't utilizing their critical thinking skills any longer. They're literally taking a, a list of symptoms that are given to them by their patients. They put it into their little, you know, um, electronic device, Palm Pilot, whatever they are using these days. And they they enter that in and then they get a diagnosis or a list of differential diagnosis. And and then and that's it. And then it's all about what prescription goes with this symptom set. That's it. That is no good. Not yeah. if you're a patient, that is no good. Exactly. And I'm watching this happen over and over again. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm a critical thinker by nature. And, you know, as nurses, we are literally, we're like hardwired to think critically and to ask questions. So it really shocked me that during COVID, um, so many just stopped asking questions because so many of the policies that came down really just didn't make any sense. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to dig into that here. I think uh, that's a good thing to dig into after the break. Um, but we are up against one of those. So when we come back, we'll dig into that. Wonderful. America Out Loud talk radio plays on the iHeartRadio network. You can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in-class apps available on Apple, Android, or Alexa 24-7. Great talk radio. All of our shows go to podcast the following day. You can hear them on apps such as Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeart Podcast, and many more. Be sure to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me. Don't forget to check out our online store at americaoutloud.shop 
where you can find all of the products that we represent on our network at a discounted rate, including ASEA Redox, which I can personally speak to seeing fantastic results with, including better sleep, increased energy, improved mood, and a decrease in my joint pain. Use promo code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your purchase. I'll catch you on the other side of this break. Stay with us. It's time and Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. Welcome back to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton. Wherever you're listening from today and whatever you're doing, I thank you for giving me the gift of your time. Be sure to make AmericaOutloud.news your daily stop for all the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, the podcasts, and videos so we can help secure America's future. If you're just joining us, I've been talking with registered nurse and the founder of CCHF, Twyla Braze. Twyla, thanks again for being here. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much, Kimberly. Absolutely. So um, before the break, we talked a lot about, we, we've covered a lot so far. I feel like we've covered nursing shortages. We've covered the implementation of AI into um, the healthcare practice. But, you know, I really want to talk a little bit about 
the absurdities that kind of came along with the with COVID. And, you know, I, I was talking before the break about how nurses, as nurses, we're really hardwired to think critically and ask questions. And so much of that didn't happen, right? I started questioning things early on in the pandemic because things just didn't make any sense to me. You know, they were having us uh, wear the same mask, for example, um, from our COVID patient room to our non-COVID patient room. They had us wearing the same N95 mask for days on end. And, you know, pre-COVID infection control policies never would have allowed for anything like that. What, what were your thoughts when you saw all of this happening? Well, you know, I've been around for a long time and often in opposition to public health initiatives, you know, surveillance, control, you know, uh, we fought an initiative here where the health department wanted to be the ones who put out uh, medical practices. And if you followed those best practices, so to speak, then you would be, nobody could sue you. So, you know, the, the whole range of where public health wants to go, including, you know, they want a, a national healthcare system, they want to ration care, they believe in rationing care. And so then when all of this was happening, um, I, you know, well, I should say one other thing. In two, right after uh, 9-11, a lot of people don't know this, but right after 9-11, uh, the CDC pounced. That's how I would say it. I think it was five weeks afterwards in October uh, 2001, where they put out the um, Model Emergency State Public Health Powers Act. And so this thing really was going, they asked every state to pass it and they used the 9-11 and they used the anthrax attack uh, to be their rationale. And they asked every state to pass it. And of course, this is what they do. They find a time where it's harder for legislators to say no. And this was, of course, this huge crisis in our country. And so, um, but this would have empowered the health officials to do all sorts of things, including to vaccinate, test, treat, uh, examine, uh, take specimens, do um, experimental treatments, all without consent. It would have, you know, allowed the quarantine, the isolation. Uh, um, they would have implemented the National Guard. I mean, it was just this huge takeover uh, of the state or the country that could happen under this Act. Well, um, 40 states introduced it and about 20 states passed it in whole or in part. So when this all, and I always said, you know, use persuasion, not coercion. That was my big thing way back then. This is not the right thing to do. Use persuasion, not coercion. And, um, and I'm glad for all the states that didn't. But what happened during COVID is essentially a lot of the states that had it or some states that didn't, they let the regulators implement a very you know similar thing. And so for me, it was like watching something, you know, 18 years later, I was now seeing exactly how it was working. Uh, the governors, you know, uh, taking away civil liberties, you know, the whole thing. So for me, I just looked at it like this is what I tried to stop in 2001 and 2002 uh, here in the state of Minnesota. And I believe it was ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council that was going around the country, also trying to get it uh, shut down. And so to some degree, we were successful in Minnesota that we actually you couldn't do all those things, treat, test, vaccinate, et cetera, without consent. Uh, but that um, lovely protection was taken away about four years later uh, in a very kind of secret hidden in the middle of some other bill. 
so we didn't even see it. Um, so the, you know these kind of things happen, but it's all about public health uh, believing that they should have the power to control everything that happens anytime that they can have anything called a public health crisis. So the the vax mandate, the the mask mandate, you know the the shutdown, the lockdown, the shutting churches, you know. Public health officials are, for the most part, on the left. So you could see that whole push on their side, you know, coming from the left. And you are a public health nurse, which I found surprising when I found that out, Twyla, I will say that. When I realized you're a public health nurse, I thought, wow, you know, that, that just impresses me even more, to be honest with you, because typically a public health nurse is very... The level of indoctrination is very deep. With yes. in your field. I'm trying to say it the nicest way possible, <laughs> which I'm really not. That's not my strong point. But um, I, so I was surprised and very impressed to know that you had to face incredible um, indoctrination attempts to be able to still have such a critically thinking and free mind, and to be able to speak out the way you do to me is incredible. Um, well. I will say that I feel like God gave me a freedom bone at birth. It's as big, you know, as as me. And uh, so whatever they would have tried to say in my training back then, I wouldn't have, I just wouldn't have bowed because it's so uh, long been just part of me. Um, I do remember that when Phyllis Schlafly first had me speak years ago, maybe like 1998, and uh, she had like 400 women in the room and she introduced me as an RN and a public health nurse. And a a groan (laughs) went through the entire audience, like sort of a gasp, like what? Phyllis Schlafly, you know, a strong conservative is bringing a public health nurse to speak to us. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I was talking about data and the privacy and how you have to have privacy to have freedom. If they take away your privacy, they implement surveillance and there's never freedom under surveillance. And then everybody was like, <laughs> calm down. But that is the presumption with my public health nurse uh, credential that I would be on the left and I would be for surveillance and indoctrination and the whole kit and caboodle. Well, I'm glad to know that there's somebody on our side in that realm of certainly, <laughs> certainly, because when we, we think about the masking, these mask mandates that came, I mean, it was clear to me that it was about control from the very beginning. I mean, as nurses, we understand at, at least, right, that these types of nurses, uh, sorry, these types of masks that they were using, the ear loop, um, you know, surgical masks or whatever, those are not going to stop uh, or prevent transmission of an aerosolized virus, period. They don't. All it takes is a simple Google search of the size of the virus and and the mask itself to realize that you don't need to be a nurse, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, right? Um, So we knew that, yet they kept on pushing these mask mandates everywhere. And to me, it just blew my mind that nobody understood. It almost became like a cult. You know, we were, I still, to this day, I can't believe when I see people masking by themselves in a car um, <laughs> or, you know, I see them Thank on you. the plane. I mean, I'm just, and I feel bad. I mean, I, to, to a certain degree, I really, it breaks my heart because the, the amount of fear that these people must live with, live with on a daily basis. And this was done to them. This this fear has been placed in these people who just don't know any better. And I think education is so important, but it really breaks my heart to every time I see somebody wearing a mask improperly, you know, or, or against a virus that isn't, it's not going to help. 
it, it just really makes me sad. It's really um, abuse of authority. Yeah. And, uh, and the thing is that we all know that Fauci knew from the very beginning that the mask was not going to work because, you know, we have his email from February of 2020 where the former Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, Sylvia Burwell, sent him an email and said, I'm going on a trip. You know, is it a good idea? Should I wear a mask? <laughs> and he says, he says, actually, I have it sitting right in front of me. I forgot that I had just gotten it. But um, essentially, he says that, uh, no, uh, no need to wear a mask. He says, masks are really for infected people to prevent them from spreading infection to people who are not infected, rather than protecting uninfected people from acquiring infection. So he said that the mask you buy in the drugstore is not really effective in keeping out the virus, which is small enough to pass through, through the material here. I'm quoting him. So it might, however, provide some slight benefit in keeping out gross droplets. I do not recommend that you wear a mask, particularly since you are going to a very low risk location. Your instincts are correct. Money is best spent on medical countermeasures such as diagnose, diagnostics and vaccines. So he told her, don't wear a mask. Yep, he did no. that. Then he went to wearing two masks on. TV. I know. It was such a. Is so we live in clown world, Twilight. I'm telling you. I, do. Like, I call do. it COVID clown world. That's what I call it. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. <laughs> very, COVID world. <laughs> very, very much so because as we see, people are like they're not thinking for themselves. There are so many people that just follow whatever is put out, and you know they regurgitate that whatever comes out on uh, mainstream media, which I try not to even watch news any longer um, because it's just, it, it's depressing to me. I know I need to really try to keep up with everything, but it's it's just, it's more absurd every day. And I don't, I, I'm like, I don't want to participate anymore. I just don't want to participate. So well, you know, in, in our, in our positions, yours and mine, where we are educating and informing, right? Advocating for everyone. Um, we, to a certain extent, have to look at the news and and we see news that other people don't see right and then bring insights so in my health freedom minute uh you know once a day i bring some little factoid and my own spin on it which is not spin it's just the fact of it right i just say this is this is what this means and this is the truth about it and here's the resource that shows you why right so we, to some degree, we have to watch the news because that's what they're watching, but then we have to tell them the truth. Exactly. You know, we, we do have to watch it as painful as it may be, uh, but we do have to be able to offer another perspective and educate people. I mean, that's how we're going to empower them by giving them the information, the education, and really teaching them how to think for themselves. I, I don't want people to take my word for anything. I want them to get take my information and I want them to research on their own and, and try to, you know, help to make these types of decisions. I think the public is so largely... Um, you know, under the spell of this system where they, they feel like they, you know, everything is gospel truth. Um, and we talked about this a little bit uh, during the break about HIPAA and how people uh, feel, I think they have a false sense of security with HIPAA. Do you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, they were they were purposefully given a false sense of security. So HIPAA was I, I have an entire section in my book about this because it's so important to tell people the truth about HIPAA. A HIPAA being a privacy rule is a complete myth. It's a deliberate deception of the American people. Uh, those people who pushed for it pushed for it to get access to our data without our consent. So even in a federal rule from 2010, they listed all the folks who are under the HIPAA rule. And so there's basically 2.2 million entities that can have, and lots of people in those entities, right? But they can all have access to our data without our consent if those who hold our data choose to share it with them. So if you, you know, give information to your doctor or if you get labs done or, you know, you, or the health plan, you know, grabs this information, those, they can share it without your consent unless there is a stronger state law. Now, there's really no state that has a stronger state law except Minnesota. And even in Minnesota, the health plans, the hospital systems, they've all become rather clever. And so we require consent in Minnesota before any sharing of information. It's a really strong law. But what did they do? They created a what I call a coercive consent form, a consolidated consent form. It might have like, I think Mayo has, tw- Mayo Clinic has like 20 different things, but one signature. Essentia Health, like 23 or 26 different things, but one signature. And so you're consenting to all of this stuff. At the top, it's consent to treatment. And then it might be consent to being billed and everybody is okay with that right but there's only one signature and there's things like giving third-party access being part of research you know um, even uh, testing you for HIV you know all sorts of things in there so it's a coercive consent form and that's why we created the patient toolbox to help you decipher uh, so you can look up the consent forms at patienttoolbox.org and you can see we've we've shown you a good consent form. We've shown you the weasel words, the terrible words like healthcare operations or business operations, the things you should cross out and say, uh, no, I do not consent. I do not consent. I do not consent. The last time I was at a doctor's office, I crossed out almost everything in it. And I said, I do not consent uh, to any of this except for billing and treatment. That's it. Right. And then I take a picture of it. So I know what I signed or I get them to, uh, you know, give me a copy. Um, And so, you know, HIPAA. So in Minnesota, people are still giving away everything because they they feel like they don't have a choice because it's a coercive consent form in any other state in the nation. uh, They they're asking you to sign the HIPAA form. Or there's actually about five ways to do this. One, it's an actual piece of paper. And it's called the HIPAA form or something like that, right? Another one is it's in a consolidated consent form, a coercive consent form. And it says something like, I acknowledge that I have read or received or understood the notice of privacy practices. Uh, By law, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says you do not have to uh, acknowledge or sign that, that you acknowledge this at all. That's actually on their website. By law, you are not required to do so, but they've you know, put it into the middle of the consent form. So I asked people to sign that, to cross that off because signing that little statement there makes people think that they have privacy. And indeed, uh, when we went to uh, Congress and we visited 22 different offices and I asked the question, what does it mean 
when you go into the doctor's office and they hand you that that HIPAA form. And to a person, literally almost using the same words, they all said, it means that my information is between me and my doctor. And I said, no, it means that you have read or understood or received the form, the notice. And by reading it, you now realize that you don't have any privacy because the notice of privacy practices is actually a notice of disclosure practices, but nobody reads it because they think, great, my privacy is protected, right? So HIPAA is this terrible deception. And it, it, it happened because people who want your data from the government to the data corporations, to the health plans, to the hospitals, uh, to, to everybody in the industry, in the quality metrics industry, they all want your data because it's gold. It's literally gold uh, to them. This is where they can, uh, United Health has, a, has an Optum Insights division. All it does is data. That's all they do. And in 2017, their revenue was $8.1 billion. They don't do any healthcare. They only do patient data. Yeah. So HIPAA was, is a, a lie that if you think it has anything to do with privacy, do your very best to not sign the form. And that includes the electronic pad. Always ask for a piece of paper. They say, well, just sign that. That's the HIPAA form. You say, give me a piece of paper. Where is that form? I don't see that form. Give me the form that you want me to sign. Would you ever sign something without having even any idea what it is behind that electronic pad? Right? People do it every day. They do it every day. That's right. Every but they shouldn't. And they need to understand that this is how they're controlling the doctors is by gaining access to everyone's data. Exactly. And I think, you know, as a society in general, I think everybody has become so apathetic and they just you know, resign themselves to like, whatever, you know, they, they don't, they just sign and they sign uh, their life away in many cases, um, you know, without informed consent. Informed consent hardly exists any longer. I mean, that was the reason why I had to walk away from my, my career as a bedside nurse, because I saw so much of informed consent not happening any longer. Um, I mean, vac- with the vaccines, just itself, informed consent never existed with those vaccines because they were using the word safe and effective when we would have no way of knowing that. We did not have the data to make such a bold statement um, as safe and effective. And, and, you know, in my opinion, I really feel like all of those doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals that uttered those words, I really feel like they should be stripped of their licensure and brought up on criminal charges. They, they're, they're believing the FDA and the FDA has no idea if they're safe and effective. Exactly. So they're, 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 you know, they're mimicking the FDA as though it were truth and they're not thinking, thinking, they should be thinking. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. I mean, I'm just a nurse, right? <laughs> I couldn't believe 96% of physicians not only received the vaccine, but then they were pushing these untested uh, dangerous and ineffective products on their patient population. And they continue to do so even after all of, you know, I mean, the short-term data was alarming, but here three years later, um, we're still seeing boosters continue to be offered. And, and I mean, the harm is, is obvious. Oh, so obvious, you know, and then you have things like the CDC that quits, shuts down their V-safe database of 10 million people. So they're not even looking for the long-term effects from these 10 million people. And they want to ignore the VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. They want to ignore that. But, you know, if you look at the data from the VAERS, you know, and uh, openvares.com, 
org, I think, openbears.com. I think it's openbears.org. They um they actually, you know, take all the data from bears and they can show you. And the the number of reports of injury, you know, it's like 30 or 35 years from the bears. And it's, you know, these tiny basically blips on every year until you get to 2021. And then it's this huge escalation of injuries and deaths and, you know, and, and the CDC and the FDA just want to say, mm, yeah, I don't see that. Yeah, it's it's so glaringly obvious. And, you know, all we can do is continue to educate people and, and hope that more people eyes are open to what has been happening for, for so long, the corruption it runs incredibly deep. But uh, Twyla, thank you so much for being here. I wish we had more time because I, I don't have to have you back because there's so much, so much that we can dig into. Thank you so much for, for being here and for your continued efforts in this realm that you, you're, you're incredible. And like I guess that you are definitely an inspiration to me. Well, it's wonderful to be here. And the what you have started is just fantastic. So thank you so much. Thank you. And that's all the time that we have for today, friends. But remember, we are here on the air five days a week, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. You can also catch the encore at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please be sure to tune in and listen to myself and my amazing sister nurses. As we walk you through all of these hot topics, we will empower you with information and education. We will advocate and we will stand in the gap for you because we are nurses and this is what we do. I'm your host, Nurse Kimberly Overton, and you can find me here every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Until next time, be safe, be well, and God bless. Remember, we are in a war for truth. We're putting out a bounty on the real misinformation and exposing the purveyors of propaganda. No topic is off limits as we shine our lights and expose the darkness. It's time